0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So good to be together. And uh, it's been a big week this week in the world of science. Uh, if you've been following kind of NASA's pictures of Pluto, although this rather disturbing picture kind of has been discovered. First high-resolution image of Pluto causes concern. If you don't know what that means, where have you been for the last 40 years, and why haven't you watched Star Wars yet? Um, but anyway, I thought that, was, that tickled me anyway. We need to pray for the new Star Wars film, by the way, that it is actually good, don't we? I think that's important. We're going to be praying for that on our first prayer meetings. If it's anything like The Phantom Menace, then I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. So anyway, we need to pray for that. Uh, well, it's uh, it's also a really big week for us as a a, a family. It's my son's 15th birthday tomorrow, so that's kind of a big big moment in our household. Halfway through the teens, which is kind of amazing. Um, and also tomorrow, uh, our whole family and a team of 12 from Kings Arms are going to Zimbabwe together tomorrow. Um, so we are going to Harare, where we're going to be doing a, a big heaven touches earth conference in the city centre uh, with about seven or eight different churches in Harare. And so I would just love you to pray for us as we go. Pray that God just shows up incredibly and God does amazing things. Uh, we're going to get some opportunities to go into some of the, the kind of poorer townships in Harare as well to uh, just see what Jesus wants to do there. So we're just expecting a really, really fun time. So do pray for us as we go. I, I think I'm preaching somewhere in the region seven times in the next week. So I would personally really appreciate your prayers as well for stamina. And upgrades on the flight would also be nice. So... Yeah, let's go for that, and it's funny, we went, we went last year, last year was my first ever time in Africa, and of course, this time of the year, it's, it's winter time in Zimbabwe, which means that it's warmer there than it is here, um, and so we go, and I'm slapping on the sun cream, I've got my sunglasses on, I've got the shorts, and, and all the kids that are coming out of school are dressed in woolly coats, they've got their hats and their gloves, they're shivering, they're freezing, because it's only 25 degrees. And so anyway, a bit of a culture shock, and, uh, which brings us nicely, a nice segue into our message today, which is, you've got to know the right season that you're in. See what I did there? Yeah. Seamless. Seamless. Um, just wave at me if you weren't here last Sunday. Where were you? No, I'm joking. Um, well, last Sunday, we began the, the first part of a two-part kind of series, which is called Living in a Kairos Moment. And uh, we really began to look at what season are we in spiritually as a church. Because uh, you will know, as I know, that your life is always in a season. You're always in a moment in time in which certain things are going on, seasons change, they transition, and it's the same spiritually. And actually, Jesus expects us to understand spiritually what season we're living in. Personally, but also as a church family, as a community, he expects us to understand the seasons and the times in which we live. And last week, we began to explore that in the New Testament, there are two Greek words used for time. One is chronos, which means the the chronological passing of time, and the other means kairos, which is a divine moment of opportunity, a divine moment of God's favor. And we began to explore how Kairos moments are those moments in our life where God, as it were, steps off the stage and into our life for a particular moment, for particular things, and as we respond to him, he changes us on the inside in order to produce fruit in our lives. These Kairos moments of our lives are incredibly, incredibly significant, and I believe that as a church family right now, we are in a Kairos moment. We're in a Kairos season. A season where God is drawing close to do certain things in us because of what he wants to do around us. And last week we began to look at how God's calling on our life as a church family is to be an apostolic movement church, which simply means that God's design for us as a church family is not just to exist for ourselves, but to exist to resource the nations and to empower people to go to the nations and to transform culture in the nations. That's God's calling on this church. If you're in this church and you think you're just called to Bedford, I've got news for you. It's much bigger than that. Because we're called to be an apostolic family church. And because of the promise, God is committed to doing something in the process. And those kairos moments are those processing moments of God where he draws close to do something in us to get us ready. And one of, the, uh, one of the figures in the Old Testament that God's particularly been highlighting to us in this season has been Joseph, and particularly the season where Joseph is in prison. Because Joseph's prison season was a kairos season for Joseph. It was a moment where God, as it were, shut him in for a season to do certain things in him to get him ready for what was about to happen, which was he was about to be second in command of the superpower of the day. And Joseph's prison season is that moment where God is getting him ready what is to come. And so we began to look at some of the lessons that Joseph learned, we're going to carry on this morning, but let me just do a quick recap from where we were last week. We looked at three lessons that Joseph learned, and I believe God is wanting to teach us. Number one, I believe Joseph learned that the process was preparing him to prosper. The process was preparing him to prosper. And last week, we began to look at how Between the promise of God and the destination, there is this sticky business called the process. It's that bit where God is getting you ready. He's maturing you. He's fashioning you. He's shaping you into something because of what you're about to come. And someone said this, that God opens doors that no one can shut, and he shuts doors that no one can open, but it's hell in the hallway. In other words, we don't like the sticky middle bit. We don't like that middle processing bit where I love the promise and I love the destination, but I wish I could skip this middle bit. Anyone else feel like that in their life right now? Man, I wish I could get out of this thing I'm in right now. But actually, Joseph learned that it was the very process of preparation that got him ready to handle the promises well once they actually arrived. We need to understand that God prunes us so that we can survive the weight of his blessings when they actually arrive. God disciplines us as sons. Why? Why? Because his calling on your life is to be fruitful, and that's why he's committed to getting you ready. So Joseph learned that. Secondly, we looked at how Joseph understood the faithfulness of God in trial. He was very familiar with trial, he'd been betrayed by his brothers, he'd been sold into slavery, he was in a foreign land, under foreign rulership, but yet again he learns another layer of God's faithfulness and kindness in trials. And we read how, when Joseph was in prison, he experienced the kindness and the favor of God in the midst of his trial. And there was that moment where Joseph understood that if he would draw close to God in the midst of suffering, he had intimacy and fellowship with God, which was only possible in trial. That's one of the things God's teaching us. is actually, if we will learn to draw toward God and not away from Him in trial, then actually, in that very moment, you get an upgrade. (laughs) Because you're choosing to partner yourself with the comforter, with the Savior, with the deliverer. You know, there's only one way to discover that Jesus is the comforter. Go to him when you need comfort. You're not going to learn it by just reading it in the book. You've got to go to him. The reason it's there is so that you can go there. The reason you read it on the page is so that you can go to the person and discover. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, if you are walking through trial, it's a moment to come close to the Father, not draw away from him. Because God is wanting to give you something in the very midst of the prison season. So Joseph learned that. And then thirdly, Joseph learned that if he was going to transform the palace and the nation, he had to first learn to transform the prison. He had to do in his locality what he wanted to see on a massive scale. And so we began to look at the challenge for us of loving Bedford, or wherever it is that you're from right now, to the very best of our ability and make Bedford an incredible place to live. That is our calling. If we want the, na- want the kingdom to come in the nations, we've got to see the kingdom come on our front doorstep. We've got to export what we're seeing right here on our streets and our businesses and our community in our town with our friends and our schools. We've got to see here what we want to see out there. So God is taking our Love Bedford campaign to another level at the moment. So that's, that's all catch up. That's all review. That's all for free. The rest is going to cost you. No, I'm joking. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Why don't you just put a hand on the shoulder of someone you're sitting next to. If you don't know them, this is a chance to get to know them. (laughs) Jesus, we just thank you for all that you're doing among us right now. We thank you for this Kairos season that we're in. Thank you, Father, that we get to partner with what you're doing because of what we're becoming in you. Lord, thank you that you've made us to be a fruit-bearing tree. Thank you. You've made us to be an apostolic movement church that will resource the very nations of the earth. Lord, we thank you in this room, the potential to transform nations. Thank you. The person you're sitting right next to right now has the potential to transform a nation. You're sitting next to a world changer. Lord, thank you. That's the kind of a family you have put us in. And so, God, we, we just say we, we want to connect and commune and fellowship with you in this season so that we learn all that you want us to learn. God, I just thank you particularly for this process that we're in right now of learning how to rest well. Teach us how to do righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit really well. Oh, God, teach us how to take a good rest in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you that we get to breathe in the gooey goodness of the Father. We get to breathe out all the junky lies of the enemy. God, thank you that we are in a fruitful place right here. Teach us how to rest. Thank you, Father. Just, just quickly pray for the person next to you. Pray that they would learn how to rest well. Pray that they would get that in this process. Pray that they would learn how to enjoy God and feast on His goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Shorah, mama, Amen. All right. Well, here is the fourth lesson that Joseph learns. He learns this that he needs to do what he did at first. It's a season of focus. How many of you know when you get shut into prison, it's a season to focus. <laughs> suddenly all of a lot of your options are taken away and it's uh, suddenly it's a season of great simplicity actually. It's a season of focus and what Joseph discovers and uh, I'm going to just summarize this bit of the story, just for the sake of time, is that in the place of the prison, suddenly other people began to come to him, two people in particular, a baker and a cupbearer, who were thrown into prison because they displeased the king. I'm not quite sure how you displease a king as a cupbearer, but I don't know. He was thrown into prison. He did something wrong. And so they're thrown into prison and they begin to interact with Joseph, and they begin to dream in the nights, and they wake up saying, "What can these dreams mean?" Can anyone interpret these dreams? And we read this in Genesis 40, verse 8. It says, we both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. But then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to the Lord. Tell me your dreams. Now, what we know about Joseph's story is that as a young, probably a 16 or 17-year-old, growing up in his home family, he was a dreamer. That's how he started life. As a dreamer, he was very familiar with the the, the world and the realm of supernatural visions and dreams. He had numbers of dreams in which God unveiled to him his future. His father, Jacob, was very familiar with the language of dreams and angelic visitations and the showing up of God. This was the environment he grew up in. And yet for a season, we we don't read of any of that kind of activity in Joseph's life until this moment. Until this moment where he gets shut in in the prison season, suddenly these gifts that he has come to the fore. These core strengths, this this ability to dream with God suddenly comes into focus. It's almost like he gets back in touch with what he was really meant to be doing. (laughs) And that's what happens. In Kairos seasons, you suddenly get back in touch with what you're really meant to be doing. I wonder whether you have that clarity in your life right now. Do you have that clarity... That what you're doing right now is what you should be doing. Joseph enters this season of incredible focus. He has to do the things that he did at first. Steve Jobs, the creator of Apple, said this. He said, this has been one of my mantras, focus and simplicity. Simple can be much harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean and make it simple but it's worth it in the end, because once you get there, you can move mountains. I love that. There is a great power in focus and simplicity. And one of the temptations, I think, for us as a church, as we get bigger, is to do more and more complex things, but to do them less well. And it's funny, isn't it, how the more mature and fruitful you become, the more tempting it is to leave doing the things that made you fruitful and mature in the first place. You ever notice that, that there is, a, there is a pressure to be endlessly innovative rather than enduringly faithful? Do you feel that pressure in this culture that we live in? There is always a pressure to be innovative all the time. Let's come up with a new idea. Let's come up with a new way of doing things. Let's try this. Let's try that. Now, of course, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but if in the searching out of new ideas, we forget what God is here in the first place, something's gone wrong. <laughs> Something's gone wrong. And it's interesting that in the the Bible, the church in Ephesus, God particularly highlights the church in Ephesus to say to them, listen, you guys are doing well. You can read about this in Revelation chapter 2. He says, you guys are are working really hard. The translation for working hard in that particular passage in Revelation 2 is laborious toil. Jesus says to them, You are doing really well at laborious toil, but I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love, repent, do the things that you did at first. That's a good word. That is a good word. See, laborious toil has its place, but not if you forget your first love. How many of us start out doing things because of first love, but we end up doing them out of duty? 1 Corinthians says this, listen, if you, could, you could prophesy and fathom every mystery, you could interpret every tongue, you could have angelic visitations, you could have this, you could have faith that move mountains, if you don't have love, you are like a clanging cymbal. In other words, an irritating, painful noise in somebody else's ear. And that's what happens. When we drift into just duty that has lost connection with love, we become an irritating noise, often to ourselves. You think, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? That's a good question to ask. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Now, yes, there are seasons to just press through, to persevere, to hold on to God. We don't always feel nice, fluffy emotions. Sometimes we just got to hold on to what God said and carry on. There are seasons for that. But listen, there still needs to be this heartbeat of love pumping in us. I'm I'm holding on because I'm connected to someone in love. And I think there's something in this season about God getting us back into this place of doing the things that we did at first, the things that made us fruitful. And I just want to suggest three things I feel God is calling us to do that we did at first. These are not necessarily things that we stopped doing, but I feel like God is calling us to put focus on them. In a fresh way, and if I don't mention your favourite thing, please don't get offended. I'm sure there are more than these three things, but here are three things. Firstly, God's calling us to build the culture of the Father. It's calling us to build in this church community and around us the culture of the Father. Now, I realise that for numbers of you, you have probably only started to come to this church maybe in the last two or three years. Some of you maybe a little bit longer than that, and Part of the history and the story of this church is that God kind of apprehended us in a fresh way with this message of the Father Heart of God about maybe six or seven years ago as a church community. And in that season, this was before we were a part of a church as a a family. But I tell this story like that's my own because I've heard it so many times. And uh, Simon and PJ and the elders' team at the time were just praying and asking God, saying, God, just send us anyone that can help us as a church. Get out in the streets. See miracles, lead more people to Jesus, help us be more mission-minded. God, send us anyone that can help us be that kind of missional church. Send us someone. And so Simon tells the story how one day he was, I think, other at home at the office and the phone rang. And it was a guy called Peter Jackson who rang up. He runs a Father Heart Ministries. I think he's an American guy out of the Vineyard Movement. And he said to Simon, I've had a cancellation to do a Father Heart Conference in the U.K., would you like to take the weekend instead for your church? And Simon tells the story that in his head he thought, no thanks, we've kind of done that. We know that God's our Father, we're kind of moving on to this mission stuff now. And then he heard that small, still whisper of the Holy Spirit, Simon, you did say send you anyone that could help. (laughs) At which point he said to Peter Jackson, yeah, we'd love you to come, that'd be great. And so Peter Jackson came and spent a weekend just beginning to freshly unpack the truth that God is our Father and that we are his sons and daughters, that we are adopted into his family. And holy kingdom chaos broke out in the church at that point. Just wave at me if you were there in those kind of early Father Heart days. Brilliant. And God kind of did something in this church family in that early season that A, began to unearth orphan-hearted thinking in us, but B, just began to unveil the wonder of being with a heavenly Father who loves us extravagantly. And I tell you, this is a message that should never, ever, ever change. That we should never, ever, ever deviate from. Because when we build a culture of the Father, it's, it's more than just knowing that the Father loves us. It begins to translate into the way that we operate as a community. Do you know what a culture of the Father looks like? It looks like family. It looks like family, it looks like community, it looks like brothers and sisters doing life together. It looks like spiritual fathers and mothers, spiritual sons and daughters. It looks like people who are honoring one another above themselves, forgiving one another in community, doing life with one another, being in and out of one another's homes, sharing hospitality with one another, opening their homes to widows and orphans, setting the lonely in families, creating a culture of encouragement and of affirmation and empowerment where the least of us feels empowered to take on a troop and to do something with their life where the most broken gets mended and knit into family. That's what the culture of the father looks like. And that's what God's calling us to build. And all of that is enabled by living in this place of understanding who he is and who we are. That kind of a culture. And it deals with our tendencies towards drivenness. It, tends with our ten- it deals with our tendencies towards striving, doing things in our own strength. It deals with our tendencies of just being task-oriented all the time, and it pushes us into deep relationship with one another. Don't you want to be part of that kind of a church? I do. And praise God, that is what we are. But God is saying, focus on this in this season. Focus on it. It's such a beautiful thing. I remember having a breakfast with some friends who were thinking of moving to the area a couple of years ago. And Royden and Jan and me and Carol, we just went to breakfast at the Swan Hotel and we we're just kind of chatting with these guys and I we was so provoked because in the middle of croissants, they, they over the table they said to us, so we're just getting to know you a little bit, what is it that you most love about one another? I was like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they pointed to Royden first and they said, Royden, why didn't you start? What do you love most about your wife? You ever been asked? You ever been asked that over breakfast? It was suddenly, like the winds of change happened in the Swan Hotel. I thought this is going to be a very different type of breakfast. And you know, but another kind of hour went by. You know, we were all in tears around the table. We were hugging one another. You know, we were kind of sharing encouragements and affirmations and what we loved about one another. And suddenly, the culture of the father had invaded the Swan Hotel. In that moment, it was beautiful. It was amazing. God's calling us to focus on this. A theologian called J.I. Packer says this, that adoption, the, the doctrine of our adoption into the father's family is the highest blessing of the gospel. It's the highest blessing of the gospel. In other words, do you understand that God's ultimate goal of the cross was not the forgiveness of sin? Do you understand that? The ultimate goal of God for the cross was not the forgiveness of sin. The cross was necessary to achieve God's ultimate goal, which was this, family. Yes. Come on. To adopt you into his family. To have you as his son, as his daughter. That was God's ultimate goal, was to redeem humanity from being lost and to find them. Yeah. <laughs> that was loud. That was good. I think, I think God turned it up at that moment. Or Nigel did. The ultimate goal of the cross is family, is adoption. And that's why we will never, ever change the subject of building the culture of the Father. Second thing I believe God's calling us to focus on in this season is the kingdom of the Son. The kingdom of the Son. Because Jesus demonstrates to us what normal Christianity should look like. If you've not yet read Wendy Mann's book, Naturally Supernatural, please buy it and read it. Because the heart of that book is this. Jesus models for us what normal Christianity really looks like, which means bringing the kingdom wherever you are. That's what normal Christianity looks like. Jesus was at the same time the most extraordinary and the most normal Christian that ever lived. He is the model. He is the superhero. He is the example, the centerpiece. He is the one that we're fashioning our lives around. What did he do with his life? He spent his life bringing the kingdom where he was. That's what you're called to do. Particularly, you're called to bring the kingdom with signs and wonders and demonstrations of supernatural power. That's what you're called to do. And if you read the Bible, you cannot escape that that is your calling, because that's what Jesus did. That's the life that Jesus modeled. You know, it just, it's amazing those moments where suddenly the power of God shows up. I remember one of the first most extraordinary miracles I saw when I was just a teenager at the end of a, a Bible week. I remember praying for a couple at the end of the meeting, and uh, her husband wheeled her forward in a wheelchair, and uh, they said, we'd love you to, to pray for my wife. I said, well, what's wrong with you? She said, well, I've got this chronic arthritic condition in my body. It means that I can't walk without pain. Uh, my joints seize up. And she said, the reason I want to be healed is because God has called us to go to Africa to serve him. And she said, I can't get any insurance. No one will insure me to fly. I'm not well enough to go, but I know God's called us to go. And so I just, I want Jesus to heal me. And so I remember in that moment, Carol and I were there praying for this couple, and I thought, I've got about this much faith right now. So Jesus, please come and show up. I remember we we prayed for this lady And at the end of the prayer, I don't know even why I said this, but I wouldn't normally say this. I said, why don't I take your hands and see if you can stand and let's see what God's done. Really not expecting that God would have done anything, if I'm honest. I took hold of her hands and I think she had more faith than I did. And she said, yeah, I'd love to try that. So she grabbed hold of my hands and I gently pulled her up and she stood on her own feet. And then she just began to flex her legs like this. And this look of surprise came (laughs) on her face. And she's like, all the pain has completely disappeared. She began to... <laughs> she, she began to walk around her own wheelchair, and she, to cut a long story short, she pushed her own wheelchair out of that meeting, completely healed. A um, number of months later, in the, the, the magazine that New Frontiers used to publish, there was an article about them, that they had now gone to South Africa, and they were serving God where he had called them, because God had shown up. Listen. You are called to a miracle mandate, a mandate of demonstrating the kingdom with signs and wonders. And that is not just for the person you're sitting next to. That is for you because you've called to follow Jesus. And the reality is it's easy to give up on the miracle mandate because when you sign up to living a lifestyle of praying for the sick and wanting to bring freedom to the oppressed, you are going to come face to face with a lot of pain which is why people give that lifestyle up so often. I heard one healing evangelist say that the moment I, that I knew God had called me to pray for the sick as a lifestyle, I knew that I was going to come face-to-face face with pain all the time. Not just the pain that people carry in their physical bodies and their situations, but the pain of unanswered prayer, the, the pain of mystery, the pain of why didn't God show up? I took a risk, but nothing seems to have changed. That's painful. And that's why we give up. It's easier to downsize our dreams than it is to believe what Scripture says. Pastorally, it's much easier to shrink our dreams and say, I'm not going to risk much so that I don't come in contact with much pain. That's much easier than it is to read the book and say, Jesus modeled a lifestyle of praying for the sick. So I'm not going to change the subject, no matter how painful it is. And that's why it's so important that we learn as a community how to bring the kingdom whilst at the same time processing mystery, processing disappointment, dealing with the things that we don't understand, loving the person in front of us, even if nothing seems to have changed in the moment, learning to bring heaven to each individual that we pray for, but never changing the subject. I was so moved recently to hear a story that Bill Johnson told about a father who brought to him uh, his dead child. And... This father brought this dead baby to to Bill and said, would you pray for my son that he gets raised from the dead? And Bill said he prayed, prayed his best prayer, and nothing happened. And I was so provoked, as he said, we cannot tolerate powerlessness. He says, yes, we engage with mystery. We We trust in the sovereignty of God in the moment. We love the person in front of us but we cannot ever tolerate a powerless gospel. That is not okay. And he said in those moments where we fail to see power break out around us, that's exactly the moment to get back up the mountain and to seek the Father and say, Father, this is not what Jesus paid for. This is not what Jesus paid for. Please will you pour out power on the church. I tell you, we've got to, grab this kingdom mandate and not let go and just keep going after it. And then thirdly, the presence of the Holy Spirit. God's calling us to focus on leaving room for encounter with the person of the Holy Spirit. We often quote this this phrase, this quote, which says, uh, when you prioritize God's presence, you get far more done by accident than ever you did on purpose. We're great at quoting that. I'm not sure we're quite as good at living that out. It rolls off the tongue nicely, but actually, are we leaving room for an encounter with the God's presence in our lives? And by that, that doesn't necessarily mean longer worship times on a Sunday morning. It may mean that sometimes, but leaving room for encounter with the presence of God means living every day with an awareness of, what are you doing, Holy Spirit? What is it that you're saying today, which could happen just as well as you're brushing your teeth or driving to work as it does on a Sunday morning? Holy Spirit, what are you doing in this moment? How can I get on your agenda? How can I get on your wavelength? What is it that you're doing, Holy Spirit? i want to leave room in my life for an encounter with you that changes me. Are you leaving that room in your life right now? To say those encounters with the Holy Spirit changes us. In our last Father Heart Conference, there was this morning session where I was just sitting, and just for the first time I reflected in maybe a year or so, I was just in a place where I wasn't holding any responsibility, and I was just there, with the Lord, just listening. And I thought, This is so nice. Why haven't I done this more regularly? <laughs> I meant to live in this place. And that place, I just remember just beginning to feel overwhelmed with the love of the Father for me. I just began to weep just as I was sitting in my seat. So I encountered the Father's love. And suddenly I, I felt God take me into this vision. And in this vision, I could see this. Now, for some of you, this is gonna sound nuts in about one second's time, but I saw this vision of an angelic figure, and he looked like crystal, and this iridescent light was flowing in and out of this angelic figure, and he was performing, and it looked like he was holding the reins of a horse that were attached to something in my heart, and he was pulling something out of me. I was like, God, what is that? What is it, what is it that he's trying to pull out of me? And the, and the Father just said to me, it's your fear. He's trying to pull fear out of your life, Phil. And the Father said to me, Phil, you need to repent right now of living under fear. And so I did, just as I was sitting there just weeping, listening to the music, I just began to repent of living under fear. And as soon as I did so, this angelic figure pulled this thing out of my chest and took this fear out of me and into the distance and then disappeared. It was amazing. And then in that moment, I felt the Father read over me Jude one twenty one, which says this, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus. To bring you to eternal life. And I tell you, those kind of moments change you, leaving room for encounter with the Holy Spirit. And we're called to be a community of the Spirit, which means that sometimes things may seem messy. It may mean that our agendas have to change. It may mean that we have to make room for things which we haven't planned for in our lives. I tell you, wouldn't you rather live that way than just an automatic pilot? You've got to leave room for encounter. Got seven minutes left, so I'm going to do the last points really quickly. The next thing that Joseph learns is this, is that he learns the language of heavenly wisdom. In prison, he learns actually how to handle heavenly wisdom to earthly solutions. And there's something about his season of being shut in where he has to learn how to bring about heavenly solutions using the wisdom that God gives. And that was important, Because he was going to go on to direct what to do in a national famine. He needed to learn in the small season how to direct with heavenly wisdom, because in a moment's time, he was going to be before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was going to say to him, well, if there's a famine coming, what should we do? I'd say increasingly, the world around you is going to ask you the question, what should we do? And prophetic wisdom is not just understanding what God wants to do, it's understanding what to do when that happens. It's bringing solutions from heaven's perspective to earthly problems. And increasingly, you're to expect in your sphere of influence and your workplaces, people coming to you and saying, what should we do about this? And the reality is, I think often the church has spent time asking, Answering questions that people aren't actually asking. (laughs) See, the questions that people should be asking around you is, what must I do to be saved? What is my eternal destiny in God? Who's God called me to be? Who really is Jesus? These are the questions people around you in your workplace should be asking. And we've spent a lot of time trying to answer those questions that people actually aren't asking. They should be asking, but they're not. The questions they are asking is, what should we do about unemployment? What do we do about disaffected young people in our nation? How, how do we bring hope to the most hopeless in our land? How do we turn things around? How do we build biz- businesses that are ethical and moral? How do we create uh, families that stay together rather than break up? How do, we, how do we create marriages that actually last the course of time? How do we, How do we pour into our children? How do we build effective education systems? These are the kind of questions that people in our society are asking. And sometimes the church has got to learn how to answer those questions first. (laughs) There's a great example of that in the Old Testament where Saul, who is about to become the first king of Israel, has lost his donkeys. And that's what he's concerned about. I've lost my donkeys. How do I find them? I don't know. How do I find my donkeys? And so his, his dad has this great idea go and ask Samuel the prophet. He'll tell you where your donkeys are. And so he finds Samuel and he says, Samuel, where are my donkeys? Now what Samuel at that moment doesn't do is pull out his A to Z of how to become a Christian and say, well, before I tell you about your donkeys, first you need to repent, you need to receive Jesus as your personal savior. That's not what he does. What does he do? He tells him where to find his donkeys. Saul so finds his donkeys and then Samuel says, once you found your donkeys, come and see me again. He goes to see Samuel for a second time. At that moment, Samuel says, right, you found your donkeys, but let me tell you why you're really here. God is anointing you to be the next king of Israel, and he anoints him on the spot. And suddenly, Saul finds out what his destiny is. Sometimes people can be so entrenched in the problems of daily life that they don't know they need a savior until you deal with their donkeys first. (laughs) And before you deal with people's destinies, you sometimes got to deal with their donkeys. Which means in this season, God is teaching us as a church how to operate in the realm of heavenly wisdom to transform your environment so that people will want to know the God that you're representing to them. That was a great point. See, sometimes before you can tell them about Jesus, they need to see Jesus operating through your lifestyle, the way you build your family, the way you do your friendships, the way you honor people around you. They need to see the kingdom at work in the way that you bring wisdom into your earthly surroundings. Deal with donkeys, and people will begin to ask about their destiny. They say, What is it? What is it that you carry? <laughs> and God is teaching us that in this season: how to operate with a wisdom that is prophetic. Sixthly, Joseph learns that his public exposure needed to be matched by inner anointing and maturity. We just simply read this in verse 4, chapter 40, 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Not the most encouraging verse in Scripture. Joseph interprets these guys' dreams. He says, remember me when you're before Pharaoh, and they don't. They forget him. I think this was actually a blessing in disguise. (laughs) I think it's a blessing in disguise because I think it was vital for Joseph that his level of national exposure didn't outstrip his level of personal anointing and maturity. And sometimes you can be given a public platform far too soon before you're actually ready for it. Again, I was just so provoked listening to the guy, the team from Bethel talk about their church. And for about 15 to 20 years, TV companies and national radio companies were coming to their church and saying to Bill Johnson, we want to get you on TV regularly. We want to give you your own radio program. We want to give you national exposure. And for at least 15 years, he said, no, we're not ready. We're not ready. That's so provoking. You know, in our celebrity-obsessed culture, where we, there's a drive to be the biggest voice, to be the highest profile, to have the best website, to have the best media resources. Now, all of those things are great. I love those. But there is a pressure to be in the public eye. But, you know, sometimes God says, just gonna keep you in prison for a little bit longer. I'm just gonna get you ready so that when you do stand before kings and princes, you can handle it well. And again, I think that's one of the things God's doing in us right now. Is He's doing something in us so that we're ready. And of course, the story of Joseph ends with him coming before Pharaoh, ready for the next season. There's this little line in chapter 40, verse 14, it says. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And That's kind of almost a metaphor for what's happening in Joseph's life in that moment. He changes his clothes, and at the same time, his season is changing. Just as he gets himself ready to stand before Pharaoh, again, it's almost like that chiral season shifts, and God says, you've learned well in your prison season, now the season's changing. And you are ready for this next season. And what Joseph brings to Pharaoh are all the things that he's acquired in the season of waiting. He brings all the treasures that he's acquired, the upgrades that he's acquired in the prison. He brings all those things with him when he stands before Pharaoh. This is what he brings with him. He brings the knowledge that God's process has prepared him for the palace. He brings the knowledge that God's kindness and favor is towards him in the trial. He carries a knowledge that God can use him to transform his surroundings. He brings a proven ability to use heavenly wisdom to transform earthly problems. He brings a confidence knowing that God has unveiled him at the right time and not before time. Joseph basically emerges ready because he's partnered with God in the Kairos season. And he stands before Pharaoh confident, ready to transform nations. That's what God's doing in us right now if we will partner with the process. God's working.